Hello and welcome to The Divided Bible, part two. Last week in part one, we discussed the forgotten New Testament and the shift that occurred from the Old Testament to the New Testament in reference to the how the Holy Spirit has been poured out upon all believers and how Yeshua has come to give new commandments in the New Testament to accommodate this new outpouring of the Holy Spirit upon all believers, starting in Acts chapter two, in contrast to how the Holy Spirit came upon certain prophets and men of God before. Now today we are going to be talking about the forgotten Old Testament. We are going to be speaking to those who have placed their focus in their life by nature upon the New Testament most of all. Considering many of the Old Testament and its rules and regulations, its laws as in practice, at least being a relic of the past, something that is not really relevant anymore and now superseded by a more relevant, more modern New Testament. But what role is the Old Testament biblically supposed to play in the hearts and minds of believers today? I want to submit to you that within the new covenant itself, everything we need to know about that relevance is given to us. But I think the biggest controversy surrounding all of this is really what is the new covenant? Many Christians are actually not really sure about this and quite confused because we have mistakenly thought that the new covenant equals the New Testament and the old covenant equals the Old Testament. And so by nature, it seems logical that, well, since the old covenant is now obsolete, the Old Testament is obsolete. And since the new covenant is a better covenant built on better promises, the New Testament by nature is now the only thing we look to. To make it simple, consider this. If the Old Testament is to be considered as obsolete as the Old Covenant, would that not bring contradiction to Scripture? Because we read in Hebrews how the Old Covenant indeed is obsolete. Hebrews 8.13, in speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. But yet in Matthew 5.18, Yeshua speaks regarding the Torah and prophets and says the following, Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not an odor or a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. If Jesus says that it's going to take for heaven and earth to pass away before even an odor or a dot passes from the law, that is known as the Old Testament, then that's a contradiction with the book of Hebrews. For the book of Hebrews states that the Old Covenant is now obsolete unless the Old Covenant and the Torah and Prophets are in fact not the same thing. The Old Covenant and the Old Testament indeed are different. A covenant in simple terms is an agreement. 
It is like a wedding vow when two people come together and state we will love one another. We will do all of these things towards one another. And this is the covenant of our marriage that cannot and shouldn't be broken. But then when we talk about something like the Old or New Testaments, in technical terms, they aren't the covenant itself, but rather it is what we call the division that is now within our Bible. The Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets, that which was written down before Christ has come and the New Testament, the writings of the apostles uh, that is now resembling the story of Yeshua and the early church as seen in the book of Acts. But they aren't the same as the agreements, the covenants that God has made with us itself. Rather, the relation is, is that within the Old Testament, the Old Covenant was ratified. And within the New Testament, the New Covenant was ratified. But notice this is different from the Old Testament being the Old Covenant or the New Testament writings being the New Covenant. In Hebrews chapter 9, we read more about the ratification of the Old Covenant. And it's said in Hebrews 9:19, for when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats of water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. We also read about the vow itself in Exodus 19 verse eight. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. And Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord. So as we see this covenant is ratified by blood at Mount Sinai, we have now another covenant that Yeshua ratifies with his blood at the Last Supper. And he says in Matthew 26, 28, for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. And to just drive this point home, Consider how this new covenant that Jesus brings us actually derives most of its rulings, its laws, its instructions from the Old Testament, the Torah and the prophets. I mean, just think about it. As believers, we know it's wrong to commit adultery, to steal, to murder. We and that we ought to honor our father and our mother. And the list goes on all of the principles that we all agree as being good and from God are actually originally what God has given in the Old Testament. And Yeshua continues to even build upon it, fulfill these by continuing to say, well, you've heard it said, do not murder. But I tell you, if you hate your brother in your heart, you are liable to hellfire as you call him a fool, or you've heard it said, do not commit adultery, but I tell you, whoever commits adultery in his heart will be liable to judgment. So we see this fulfillment and Yeshua continues to speak. And he talks about this greatest commandment that we are also familiar with, right? Where he says in Matthew 22, 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul and mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Did you know that even this very commandment where he says this is the greatest one, where he gets this from is also from the Torah and prophets, the Old Testament. It's very well known as the Shema, and we can find it in Deuteronomy 6 verse 4. While most Christians believe and agree with this, they only follow Old Testament commandments explicitly repeated within the New Testament. In practice, abolishing the Old Testament while remaining to keep the New Testament. But is this what Jesus intended? You see, he said in Matthew 5:17, do not think that I have come to abolish the Torah or the prophets. If Jesus, the one who is ratifying, who is bringing about the new covenant to us, is telling us that he is not going to be using this new covenant to abolish the Old Testament, then we really have to ask ourselves two questions. What is it that is actually new about the new covenant? And what is it that is actually old, that is passing away within the old covenant? Because if we can actually accurately understand the distinction between the two, maybe then that would hold the key for us to fully understand what a believer's life is supposed to look like and how we ought to imitate Yeshua. Firstly, what's new about the new covenant? There's a few things, but first I'd like to discuss with you what we said a covenant actually is an agreement, a wedding contract, a, a vow, if you will. And this was really the main problem that God hoped to solve with the new covenant. See, the old covenant was when God came to Israel and said, I am going to make this agreement with you. I want you to keep my statutes, my laws, my instructions, your end of the agreement, and I will bless you, Israel. But history tells us that Israel failed in this. They themselves broke the covenant because they went into idolatry or adulteries against God when they followed other gods, driving God, the God of Israel, to jealousy. But this was a massive problem because of Israel's adulteries with other gods. God could not remarry Israel, could not take Israel back and have a restored covenant with Israel again, according to God's own law. And God has to follow his own law because he is righteous and good and perfect in all his ways. We see the law that brings about this restriction in the book of Deuteronomy 24, verse one. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found indecency in her and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand and sends her out of the house and she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife and the latter man hates her, writes her a certificate of divorce, puts it in her hand and sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies, who took her to be his wife, then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. 
after she's been defiled, for that is an abomination before the Lord. Israel is in this place. She is this adulterous woman who has gone and taken up a new husband for herself by lying with foreign gods. And in fact, in the book of Jeremiah, the prophet Jeremiah tells us that God actually did divorce Israel because of all of this. We read in Jeremiah 3, 8, she saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one Israel, I had sent her away with a decree of divorce. This law in the Torah actually restricts Israel, God's bride, from coming back into covenant with him. And that is why the old covenant could not simply be renewed in the way that you could renew a lease on your rent for another year. It couldn't be as simply as signing your name on the dotted line, like Israel said, I do in the first place. No, this could not happen. But what would be the solution? How could God get Israel back into covenant with him? And this is the most beautiful story in the Bible itself, because God sees an opportunity to love like no one has ever loved before, like no other quote unquote God of those, this world would be able to love us. In fact, he, the one true God comes and shows us what true love is. Paul tells us what his master plan is. And he says in Romans 7 verse 2, For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she's not an adulteress. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit to God. Paul tells us that this law of marriage from the book of Deuteronomy has kept us bound in before where we couldn't come back to God because of our adulteries with the world. But God has found a way to get us back. And what he does is he comes in the flesh and he dies because it says that if a if the husband dies, the woman is released and free to marry whomever she wishes. And so he dies. And as Christ is resurrected from the dead, he is now a new. He has a new life. And now he calls his bride to die to herself in baptism, right? He tells us die with Christ and be raised out of the water, raising resurrected with Christ. So you are a new spotless bride as well. And now because this has occurred, God can come. Yeshua can come like at that last supper and say, my blood allows this new covenant to take place. My blood that is spilt for you allows you to be free from that law of marriage that prevented you from coming back into covenant with the father. This is why Paul writes in his writings things like that the letter kills, but the spirit gives life. What does that mean? It sounds strange. Does it mean that the law of God is bad? No, 
The, the, the word says that the law is holy, wonderful, good. But see, what does the law do? It points our, our sin out and it can keep us bound if we are guilty, if we have broken it. But he says the spirit gives life. In other words, because the spirit of God has come to raise Yeshua, Jesus from the dead and has come to raise us from the dead anew, to make us new from the inside out. Now we can actually have a life because the law itself cannot give you life. It only tells you what is right and wrong. But you need a supernatural empowerment and resurrection to be born again so that you can actually live transformed in obedience to God's instructions. Allow me to use my personal covenant with my wife that I have right here. You see, we made a covenant. We call it a ketubah, right? And we wrote down what our agreements, our commitments are going to be for one another in our marriage. And, you know, some of what we said was, for example, we had the bride says to the groom, I will love, cherish, respect, honor you all the days of my life. I will support, encourage you in all that God calls us to do for his kingdom. I will walk by your side as your partner and your companion. I will submit myself to God and walk in his way so I may be a blessing to you and to our family. We see that these are some of the quote unquote laws and regulations of our wedding vows, our covenant that we have. But now consider this with God having come to Israel with many similar laws and rulings, agreements about what that covenant between God and Israel is going to look like that we call the old covenant. Considering Israel's departure from God and how God has come to get her back through doing all of this has God's desire for how Israel is to love him changed. You know, like my desire for my wife, no matter what happens, remains the same. And so God's desire for what is good, what is holy, what is evil and what we ought not to do, it remains the same. In considering all of the Torah and prophets as being the old covenant, we have thought of them to be obsolete. But we see that when Paul writes and uses the word the law and speaking of it in a seemingly negative type of light, we must understand the context, because in this example, we see that he was not talking about the law of Moses that we are bound by. He was talking about the law of marriage and trying to explain the gospel message of how Yeshua has released us and allowed us to be free. Not that the law was bad, but because we broke it, because we had sin and the law rightfully pointed out our sin. The law was never the issue. We were just like if there is a wedding vow, a wedding covenant made between a couple. If someone goes and commits adultery, it wasn't the wedding covenant, the regulations that the commitment that they made to one another, that was the issue. What was broken was the covenant and was broken by the person who sinned. But how can we have come today and say, well, yes, we broke the old covenant. And so therefore let's do away with the rules and regulations that we broke. That makes no sense. Notice how when God came to release us from the law of marriage by dying on the cross for us and raising 
from the dead, raising us from the dead, that he did it all lawfully. He didn't do it lawlessly. He didn't break his own law. He upheld his own law to the point of even going to die on the cross to do so. Would he do all of this just so that we can now have permission to break the law? And what makes and how does it even make sense for him to say in this new covenant, I am writing the law and not abolishing it. I'm writing it in a new place. I'm writing it on your heart. But now if he writes the law on our heart, that's the opposite of abolishing it or doing away with it. That, that is writing it on a, pl- in a place even closer to us than ever before. It's putting it inside of the temple of man instead of it just being on a stone. Paul writes that there is now a new way that we are going to be serving God in the new covenant. And he says in Romans 7, 6, we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive so that we serve in the new way of the spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So we see that Paul's writing about this release from the law that held us captive. And we know with context, he's not speaking about all of the laws within the Old Testament, but he's talking about specifically having died so that he can remarry us within the bounds of the law itself. But he says that this is going to enable something new. And this is another new thing in the new covenant that we need to realize. He says you're going to now be able to serve him in the spirit, not in the way of the written code as we did in in times of old. What does this mean? It simply means that there is a promise. Remember when Yeshua said, I it is good that I go from sending a promise of the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit indwells us, writes the law on our heart and transforms us and empowers us to actually now be able to keep it. Because before we had all flesh were had the spirit poured out on them, they continuously broke the law of God. But God says it's going to be different this time. This time I'm going to empower you. This time I'm going to be with you. You're not going to walk by the flesh. You're going to walk by the spirit that you've now received, serving me in a greater, newer way. But notice he's not saying that he's doing away with the written code. He's just saying that he is now writing the written code on our heart and the spirit inside of us is going to empower us to keep it. The prophet Jeremiah expands on this when he explains the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 verse 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they will be my people. So why did Israel break the old covenant? Because the Holy Spirit has not yet been poured out on all flesh. So they were not empowered in the same way. And the law was not written on their hearts. Notice that the old covenant was not broken because the commandments were the issue or were at fault, but because the people had untransformed hearts. 
This is important to keep in mind because we need to be careful to think that the new covenant with the law written on the heart is actually there to abolish the need for us to study the written law. I mean, let's just make this practical. If a man is taught by another man how a certain law of God is no longer relevant to them, how it is abolished, something to not be considered. Now this man has retained knowledge, a lie. Because Yeshua said, not a jot or a tittle will be abolished until heaven and earth passes away. But nonetheless, this man believes the lie. And so when the Holy Spirit comes to write the law on the heart and convict the heart of the man to keep a certain law, confusion enters because the heart of the man cries out for a law to be kept, to repent of a certain sin. But the man was taught in his mind that it is okay to commit that sin. And so we see that this is why it is still valuable if the, for the man to receive the knowledge, the truth that will set them free to actually be able to not be confused, but to obey what the Holy Spirit is writing on their heart to obey. And Paul himself even said that he, even though he has the Holy Spirit, even though he has the law written on his heart, he still needed to study the written word of God because how else he says, will he know what sin is with confidence? Because see your mind, you need the knowledge of right and wrong and you, your heart can then come in full alignment with your mind and you can walk as Yeshua, as Jesus walked. Romans 7 verse 7, what then shall we say? that the law is sin by no means. Yet if it had not been for the written law, I would not have known sin for I would not have known what it is to covet. If the law had not said you shall not covet. If Paul benefited from reading in the Torah and prophets, reading in the Old Testament, you shall not covet or you shall not commit adultery, or you shall not murder, or you shall remember the Sabbath, then so will you benefit. Who are we that we can say, well, we, we don't need to do what Paul did because we have a law in our heart that guides us. Yes, we do. And the Holy Spirit guides us and teaches us. Praise God for that. But when we believe a lie because we listen to the wrong voice. You see, here's the thing, brothers and sisters, we want to argue against saying, oh no, we don't need to study the written law of God anymore because the law is written on our heart. But then we will go and sit in a pew and listen to a false teacher teach us about things they ought not to teach. And we would rather listen to the false teacher tickling our ears than study the written law ourselves to make sure that we study ourselves approved to know right and wrong, to bring discipline to our own flesh and bodies, to make sure that we walk like Yeshua. Who do you desire to listen to? And why do you make excuses about God's own word and the study of it? Why have we said that we don't need that old relic of the past, that Old Testament, when it is the very thing that Paul says, this is how I knew what sin was. 
And see, here's the problem with Christianity today. Let me say it, brothers and sisters. We don't know what sin is anymore. And it has given rise to more and more radical movements, and it's all our fault. People who go further and further away from the truth, who have no idea what their right hand from their left is anymore, what right or wrong is anymore, because they do not get their definition of sin from God's word. They get it from, well, just follow your heart. And when they say follow your heart, they're not talking about the Holy Spirit. They're talking about their own fleshly evil desires that are conceited. But see, if you actually were followed following the Holy Spirit and led by the Spirit, the Spirit will lead you back to the Word so you can have confirmation, so you can know, so you can have the knowledge of what is right and the good and pleasing desire of our Father. And when you know what is right and what is wrong, then the Holy Spirit can do His job. Come and say, let me empower you to do what is right, even when you're surrounded by what is wrong. We read in Acts 15 how the apostles declare in the early church that they are still going to be looking at the reading of Moses, quote unquote. That is the listening to the Torah and prophets being read in the synagogue every Sabbath. We read in Acts 15:21, for from ancient generations, Moses has had in every city those who proclaim him, for he is read every Sabbath in the synagogues. Notice present tense. Moses is being read. They are going to be learning that they are going to be studying that as they go to the synagogue every Sabbath, because let's just think about this. Honestly, they did not have a a Bible on their phone like we do today. Instead, what they had were big Torah scrolls. No one could afford except the very wealthy. And so they had to go to the synagogue where the schools were opened on the Sabbath and read so they can hear the word of the Lord and study themselves approved. Yeshua himself spoke regarding this. Jesus said in Matthew 22:40, on these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. See, when there is a dependent, you know, we use that word for describing when a child is our dependent. They are dependent upon us. They are connected to us because of their dependence upon us. If your child was not dependent upon you feeding them and teaching them and taking care of them, then they wouldn't be your dependent and they would not even be living in your house. They would be living their own lives, but it's because they need you that they are with you and they are under your roof and you care for them. The law and the prophets and all the commandments contained therein are like the children of the parents, which is the two greatest commandments. Yeshua is not saying that you should love the Lord your God and love your neighbor, but don't worry about any of the dependencies. No, they're connected the way that you love the Lord is by keeping his commandments. That's why he said, if you love me, keep my commandments. The way that you love your neighbor is by loving them in the ways God prescribed. He said, if you love your neighbor, you will not murder them. You will not commit adulteries. You won't steal from your neighbor. When your neighbors, uh, uh, animals come into your camp, you will return them without question. Finders, 
keepers is not biblical. Right? So, so God is telling us when you follow my laws, you can then love your neighbor and love God. But also you cannot try and keep the laws without loving your neighbor and loving God. For if you try and do so, you will walk in a legalism. In other words, you will walk in a way that is without love. You will do things religiously while missing the point of what they are supposed to accomplish. If you do not keep the law of God because of your love for God or your love for your neighbor, then you will do so improperly, missing the spirit of the law, the point of it all. So to answer our question that we posed earlier, what is new in the new covenant? The Holy Spirit which empowers our commandment keeping for us to love God and love our neighbor. The Holy Spirit did not come in the new covenant in order to abolish commandments. That's the opposite of what he desires to do. And let me just say this as a disclaimer to keep the commandments of God is not in competition to Christ. The commandments of God is not there to accomplish what Christ did on the cross. The commandments of God, in other words, aren't there to save us. Christ saved us. We are saved by faith. But following him, keeping his commandments and the commandments of the father is the fruit of our salvation, the evidence of our salvation, the evidence that we love him. Because if you love your spouse, you can say you love them. But is it not that when you do things for them that they recognize and see, well, you actually have proven your love. But then that brings us to our second question of, well, what did pass from the old covenant? If it wasn't the front of our book, the Old Testament, as we have called it, or the Torah and prophets or the law of God that is passing away with the old covenant, what is it? In the book of Hebrews, chapter seven, we read language that seems to describe something interesting. It says things like that. A former commandment has been set aside or a change in the law itself has occurred. And it truly seems to indicate that the law of God has been impacted. And indeed it has been. But the question is, in which way has it been? When it says the former commandment has been set aside, does it mean that the entire Old Testament law has been set aside? Or is there a deeper context of this chapter in Hebrews that we need to consider? Please bear with me as I read a few verses so we can get an accurate understanding of what the writer of Hebrews is talking about. Hebrews 7 verse 11, he says, Now if perfection had been attainable through the Levitical priesthood, for under it, the people received the law. What further need would there have been for another priest to arise after the order of Melchizedek rather than one named after the order of Aaron? For when there is a change in the priesthood, there is necessarily a change in the law as well. For the one with whom these things are spoken belong to another tribe from which no one has ever served at the altar. For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah. And in connection with that tribe, Moses said nothing about priests. This becomes even more evident when another priest arises in the likeness of Melchizedek, who has become a priest. 
not on the basis of a legal requirement concerning bodily descent, but by the power of an indestructible life. For it is witnessed of him, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. For on the one hand, a former commandment is set aside because of his weakness and uselessness. For the law made nothing perfect. But on the other hand, a better hope is introduced through which we draw nearer to God. Hebrews chapter 7 details the priesthoods and how under the Levitical priesthood, the blood of bulls and goats was not enough to perfect us in order to enter the presence of God, eternal life for us to be saved. See, within the Levitical priesthood, the sacrifices allowed our flesh to be purified or the temple artifacts to be purified. But that is a fleshly thing that will pass away, a purification that is temporary in order to simply approach a temple. However, a greater sacrifice is being spoken of. The sacrifice of Yeshua will cleanse us for eternal life because it cleanses our conscience from dead works so that we can enter the presence of God with a confidence like never before. Yeshua is our Melchizedek priest whose sacrifice is the only sacrifice that can actually save us unto eternal life. However, the writer of Hebrews then illustrates a somewhat of a problem. The law that was given through Moses makes no specific technical mention of this Melchizedek priest that Yeshua is, for it specifically says that priests are to come from a certain lineage, a Levite lineage of which Yeshua, Jesus was not in that line. Hebrews 7:14 For it is evident that our Lord was descended from Judah and in connection with that tribe Moses said nothing about priests but it is then written that God has come and brought forth a change in the law as it was written so that there can be made an opportunity for this to take place he says in Hebrews 7:28, for the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. And in Hebrews 7:21, that oath that was declared after the law was given by the father is spoken where he says, you are to be a priest forever and that he will have one sacrifice that he could make once and for all. But even though this is a change in the law, quote unquote, as it's described, this is not in contradiction to the law of God. In fact, this has been prophesied in a certain way because God, when speaking to Moses, said, make sure when you make the tabernacle that you make it according to the pattern that I set before you. And so we know that the earthly tabernacle that the Levitical priesthood was surrounding was only a picture, an earthly picture of the actual plan of God, the greater, if you will, temple, the greater tabernacle, the uh, a picture of the greater priest of Melchizedek, Yeshua, who will be making the greater sacrifice. That is why it is written in Hebrews 8 verse 6. 
But as it is, Christ has obtained a ministry that is much more excellent than the old, as the covenant he mediates is better, since it is enacted on better promises. And how is this new covenant better exactly? Is it because that it's there to abolish the Old Testament commandments? No, he tells us exactly how it's going to be better. He says that the problem with the old covenant was, and I quote Hebrews 8 verse 9, this new covenant is not like the covenant I made with their fathers, the old covenant, for they did not continue in my covenant, so I showed no concern for them, declares the Lord. The problem of the old covenant was not God's word, but it was that they broke it. And so the solution in the new covenant is not to abolish the very laws, but to enable God's people to actually be able to not do what they did before in the old covenant, that is to break it, but so that they can actually not be enabled to keep it. So they can have the law in their heart, empowered by the Holy Spirit to keep. And as he then goes on to say for us to rest in the salvation of Yeshua, that priest, that our hope can be in him. And what has now passed away is our hope that is no longer simply seated in a Levitical priesthood offering Levitical sacrifices but in a greater sacrifice that has been Yeshua, Jesus dying on the cross for us, showing us his love for us, us witnessing his, he is being the only perfect lamb of God worthy, the only one who could save us, the only one who we can actually put hope in. That is the greater that has now surpassed the lesser. But because this is now not just about animal sacrifices, but the sacrifice of the Messiah himself, that means that there is even a greater responsibility of righteousness upon God's people than ever before. We read in Hebrews 10, 26, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. The writer of Hebrews is reinforcing the idea of how we will be punished for setting aside the law of Moses. But he says, Actually, now within the new covenant, this punishment is going to be elevated. It is going to be more serious than the death penalty in the Old Testament. And he says now, because Christ is here, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who tramples underfoot the son of God, who profanes the blood of the covenant by which he was sacrificed and outrages the spirit of grace? The blood of Christ is so much more precious and valuable than the blood of bulls and goats. And so under the new covenant, we have an accountability that is so much greater. But what does it mean to trample underfoot the Son of God? You see, to trample him underfoot is to say, Lord, Lord, do I not do all of these good things for you? Do I not love you? Have I not called on your name? Yet he will declare to many, depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. You who are without law, 
You who have said that the law of that I have given you from the beginning, that the Messiah walked out is no longer for me or relevant for me, that I can go and break that law. If we want to be his disciples, we ought to do what he did. And whoever says that he abides in him and does not do what he did is a liar. And the truth does not abide in that one. Why is it that this is so much more serious? Because we have the witness of Christ himself, because he has walked before each and every one of us, because his life has been illustrated verse by verse in the New Testament that we have today. Now we have no more excuse to say, well, I don't know what it looks like that what God wants me to look like. We can't say that we don't know what the value is. We can't say we don't know what God's sacrifice has been towards us because he has made it evident and we've all witnessed him on that cross. This is why it is always so ironic when people say things like the Old Testament laws, they are a burden. They're hard, they're heavy. And God, thank goodness he he's released us from that. But when Jesus walked here, he said, come to me. My burden is a light. That is what is his burden, right? That's to follow him. That's to do what he did. That's to follow his laws, his instructions. My burden is light. But yet his burden was more than that in the old covenant. His burden is more heavy and he calls it light. Why? It's heavy because he says, look, I want you to walk like me and I'm going to judge you based on the intent of following the law of God. I'm going to judge you based off committing adultery. But not only that, I'm going to judge you based off committing adultery in your heart. But it's going to be lighter because I'm sending my spirit It's going to actually empower you this time so that you can do this. So you can be free from demons and sickness and sin. But see, the old covenant, which was written on stone, held accountability over our flesh. But the new covenant, which is written on your very heart, means that your heart's intent will be judged as well, not just the outward fleshly actions. That means that the accountability is so much more heavy, so much more strict. And now we want to complain about, oh, that old covenant was so heavy. I have news for you. If you want to follow Yeshua today, that is more difficult. So for those of us who want to say we just want to follow those Old Testament commandments that are actually repeated in the New Testament, I have a question for you. Are we to follow Yeshua's words alone or are we to also follow his lifestyle? Because his lifestyle fulfilled every single one Old Testament commandment. He walked every single one out because anything else would be sin. And then he said to you, now be my disciple and do what I do and follow me. You see, this logic doesn't make sense because if we want to go and say, well, just follow the Old Testament commandments that are repeated in the New Testament. Well, sorcery isn't mentioned in the New Testament. It never says do not commit witchcraft. Do not consult with diviners. These aren't commandments explicitly mentioned, but we take them at face value and know they're wrong because we're actually following the Torah. We're actually following the Old Testament there. The only problem is we tend to pick and choose about what we want and what we don't want to follow. 
Now, of course, there are certain commandments in the Torah and Prophets regarding the Levitical priesthood, regarding the temple, regarding women, if you're a man, that's not relevant to you, or regarding men, if you're a woman, that's not relevant to you. There are commandments that are for specific people like priests or kings. However, when we read the word for those commandments that are clearly for us, what are we going to do with them? See, brothers and sisters, as we conclude this, I want to submit something to you. The Old Testament, as we call it, the Torah and Prophets, and the New Testament, as we call it, is supposed to be a unified story that leads to Yeshua, to Jesus. It's a unified story that's there to help you recognize how can I be more like him? And here's the thing. Look, you can disagree with something I've said here today, and that's fine. But let me just ask you this. If there is something that you believe that is causing you to not look like Yeshua, if it is something that he did not do, if it is something that you are not doing that he did do, then that theology is false. Then that theology is leading you away from Christ, not to him. And then that theology needs to be destroyed from your mind because the truth will set you free for the Holy Spirit to then come in and say, let me convict you to do what is right. But you need to get rid of the lie that you've believed that's kept you from everything that God has wanted you to become. See, there is a balance to walk here. There is a beauty to walk in, but that balance and that beauty is the walk of Yeshua. And at the end of the day, as I've said in many teachings on here before, that this teaching has only been to tell you how to look more like Yeshua and nothing besides for that. So if there is anything that we want to criticize, if there is anything we want to disagree with, let's not disagree about that. Father, I pray, Lord, that you would come with your spirit and write your law on the hearts of your people. I pray, Lord, that you would come and destroy the works of the enemy among your people, that you would come and destroy the lies that we have believed and inherited from our ancestors. Father, I pray that you would set men and women of God free so they can walk in the fullness of the Holy Spirit and in power. Uh, they will walk in holiness and righteousness, that they would keep your commandments, that they would walk in the spirit in the casting out of demons and healing of the sick and prophesying and words of knowledge. Father, I pray that your spirit move upon us, Lord. But Lord, help us to become a people restored back to that early church. Lord, it restores back to the things that have been forgotten for thousands of years. Lord, help us to not look to a church father or to this or that man apart from looking at Yeshua. Lord, help us to look to you and be like you, Yeshua. And Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would just come among your people and with your tender-hearted grace, God, I pray that you would come and convict them of sin, righteousness, and judgment. I pray all this in the name of Yeshua, the Messiah. Thank you so much for being with me here today. If this teaching has blessed you, please share it with your friends. And I want to say a special thank you to our partners who have made this teaching and every other teaching this month possible. If this has blessed you, please consider becoming a partner 
by visiting riseonfire.com. Many blessings and shalom.